This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Soros. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is Bill White. Bill started his career at the Bank of England. He eventually became the chief economist at the BIS, and today he is the chairman of the Economic and Development Review Committee at the OECD. Last fall, Bill was awarded the Adam Smith Prize, the highest prize of the U.S. National Association of Business Economists. And as he accepted that award, he gave a speech he titled, Ultra Easy Money Digging the Hole Deeper. I'm not going to ruin the surprise for you by telling you what he said in this speech, though you probably have a pretty good idea. And we cover a lot of it in this conversation. But there are two things about this speech that I found very encouraging and actually inspiring. First, uh, that somebody like Bill, in such a prominent uh, place in the world of economics, had the courage to question these extreme monetary policies we've witnessed over the past decade. And two, that a prominent economics organization would see fit to award him for this courage. So I'm really honored and excited to have Bill on the show. In this conversation, we discuss where Bill's contrarian economic philosophy comes from and how it leads him to worry a bit more about the undesired side effects of experimental monetary policy. We also talk about the possible end games of such policies. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Bill White. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor for me to have this opportunity to to pick your brain and share your wisdom with my audience. Uh, welcome. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yes, very glad to, to have you. What um, the first thing I you know I was, I'm curious to to know about is really what first uh, got you interested in, in economics. Where did uh, where did you get the bug in the first place? Uh, total serendipity. Um, I got a scholar. I, I was always interested in politics, and uh, to, to be honest, uh, it was my intention from the time of being a teenager to go into politics. And um, I came from a family that didn't have an awful lot of money. So to go to university, I, I wanted to do it on scholarship and managed to get one. Uh, but it was a university where they only had a joint course in politics, and it was a joint course in economics and political science. And so um, the economics just sort of was there, but it wasn't my primary uh, source of interest, which was the politics and uh, the associated philosophy, I guess. And then one thing led to another, and um, I just got more and more interested in the economic aspects of things. And that's when I decided... Um, again, following the money, uh, to take up a scholarship at the University of Manchester to do uh, an MSc and a PhD uh, in economics. So that's basically how I, how I got into it. it. It wasn't a matter of intention. It just sort of grew on me over time. Gotcha. So it started out as, uh, as a, a path, uh, political path or political um, interest and, and kind of morphed into economics. Um, where, where exactly did you study? Well, I did my first degree at, the, um, at a place in um, Windsor, Ontario, 
which was called uh, the University of Windsor. Uh, previously, it was a, a Catholic uh, college, but then sort of gradually evolved into a secular one. And then I did my PhD uh, under a colonial scholarship at the University of Manchester in, in England. Gotcha. And so, you know, your your um, economics, you know, economic views, I, you know, I, I can't think of a, a, a word better than contrarian. Um, there's, you know, popular economic views, you know, kind of espoused by central bankers these days. Yours are not, uh, I guess, along those lines. What, uh, where, is there something about your schooling that uh, helped you come to different conclusions and viewpoints? Yeah, I think... Um Really, right, right from the earliest days uh, of my graduate work, um, I was very sort of skeptical of, as it were, the, the received theory. And I was much influenced by a book, maybe you will remember or have heard about it, Burton Malkiel's uh, Random Walk Down Wall Street. Of course, uh, yeah. And what I really, do you remember that? Maybe before your time, probably. Oh no, no. It's I'm, I mean, I think it's one of the more popular books. You know, that, that lays the foundation for a lot of the passive investing and, and whatnot that we're seeing today. Yeah. Well, anyway, the the basic message that I took away, as I recall, was that you don't just sort of read the stuff that tells you what people ought to do, the theory. That you really do have to get down in the trenches and find out what people actually do because there could be a difference. And uh, so when I was working on my PhD, I spent a lot of time in London uh, talking to people at big financial firms. My, my, my thesis was on, it was called the authorities in the UK gilded-edged market. And by the authorities, we meant some combination of the UK Treasury and the Bank of England, because central bank independence hadn't been invented in those days. So it was the authorities and the gilt edge market. And that brought in all sorts of questions about debt management, uh, financial stability, monetary policy, etc., etc. But um, I had chapters about portfolio practices on the part of the banks, the insurance companies, the discount houses, I think. And but the central point was that there was a, there was always a distinction in my mind between what the theory said people were doing and what their actual practices indicated they were actually doing. So that's sort of the starting point, you know, to to really raise questions. And then so many other things happened on the, I mean, in the course of my life to sort of cement this. Um, What's the word? This this questioning attitude. Um, like when I went to the Bank of Canada, for example, um, I remember we started off with a fixed exchange rate system in the late 1960s, and thought that was the um, that was the way monetary policy should uh, be managed. Turned out to be a disastrous assumption because. It just meant that the Bank of Canada was importing into the United was importing into Canada all of the big inflation in the United States. Remember with Vietnam and the Great Society and all that stuff. So we decided right. that was that wasn't a good idea. And then we started focusing in on the natural rate of unemployment as a guide for monetary policy. 
uh, only to find that our estimates of what we thought the Nehru was was actually wildly different from what the reality was because there were big changes in the unemployment insurance regime that actually raised the natural rate. So we, we made a mistake again. And then we started targeting the monetary aggregates. And that whole sort of regime was based on the assumption of the stability of the demand for money. And of course, that proved to be a, a total mirage uh, because uh, people invented things like sweep accounts, which meant that the demand for M1 uh, was actually a lot less than we'd originally anticipated. So we made another mistake. So, and, and this sort of went on and on. And I guess the, what I sort of came to the conclusion, and this is more sort of a philosophical thing than, than it is a thing to do with economics, is that just because people say it's true doesn't mean it is. And I guess I've kept up that kind of um, view of the world, not just in economics, but with respect to a lot of other things as well. Um, you know, science science proceeds on the basis of empirical analysis, right? You've got an hypothesis, then you want to test it. And if it fails the test, well, then you have to move on. And I think my whole my whole career really has been based on having to say, I'm terribly sorry, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But, right. you know, putting it up, putting the theory up against the practice, the practice turned out to be, or sorry, the theory turned out to be wrong. So that's sort of the starting point, it seems to me. It, it, it's a skepticism that goes back a very, very long way. Well, interesting, you know, that uh, I think of immediately when you, you talked about actually looking at what's happening in, in the real world, it's kind of a scuttlebutt approach to economics. You know, Phil Fisher was one of Warren Buffett's idols, and, and he kind of talked about the scuttlebutt as part of his investment process, which was not just looking at the numbers and looking at the valuations of companies on, on paper. It was actually visiting the companies and, and visiting the you know stores and products and seeing what, how consumers are, may or may not be using them or you know adapting to them. Uh, you know that's fascinating. So, do you think that's where um, most economists kind of? Uh, fall down is that they they don't they they're too wedded to theory and and don't pay enough attention to how it actually uh, works in the real world. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, I think this is really the case, and th I mean th this sort of um, what's the word th this applies in all realms of human endeavor that people get sets of beliefs and they work on the basis of that set of beliefs. And they find it very hard to jettison that set of beliefs. And I mean, if you, you go back even to the 1960s and Thomas Kuhn, you remember the structure of scientific revolutions, where the whole book is essentially about, uh, about that and about how hard it is to get paradigm shifts. And um, I think in economics, um, you know, we're seeing this really in an exaggerated kind of way. Um, at least at the moment. Um, and I find it sort of a bit funny because, you know, in economics, there, 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 there have been, and the conduct of monetary policy, there, there have been in the past, or there has been, a reasonable willingness of people to say, it doesn't work, this way of doing it doesn't work, we have to think again. This time around, the, the, 
the rigidity of the belief system is is particularly noticeable and I'm sort of wondering you know what's his name uh, Kahneman makes this point I think in thinking fast and slow um, that when people are really shocked by something that happens in an unexpected way that conflicts with their belief system Kahneman says that they don't in fact go back you know step one and question the belief system he contends that they retreat more deeply into it because it's all they've got in the face of this shocking new set of facts and it may well be that after the great moderation that uh, what happened subsequently was so shocking that maybe what we're observing is just an example of, of, of that um, but certainly um, the central bankers when you think about what they've been up to um, it really since the crisis what they've done although it's been done in unconventional ways what they've done is premised on two fundamental beliefs that were the same after the crisis broke as they were before the crisis broke and that is that whenever you get a slowdown in economic activity the problem is a, is, is deficient aggregate demand and that monetary policy can back that demand in again without there being any important undesirable side effects so that business about it monetary policy will work and it won't have any undesirable side effects that's basically been the hallmark of both the pre-crisis and the post-crisis monetary policy reaction and just from a common sense perspective it strikes me that this is all very odd because one would have thought that when the crisis happened when theory said it couldn't and its memory lingered on for years when theory said there should have been a rapid readjustment back to full employment that people would have started to think again but they didn't it's been essentially business as usual so i i just find the whole thing very odd it, it is very odd and i think honestly um the average person when you kind of explain to them you know what's happened over the past 20 years with monetary policy it's pretty obvious these undesired side effects that you've talked about um you know massive you know debt creation and financial bubbles and and these things and very little to show for it in the way of you know economic uh benefits um so uh you know that that's purely i think uh, just a function of um central bankers who are living in their own world of uh you know reality uh and but this you know this this kind of begs the question so th they they have decided to treat uh, every recession over the last you know 20 20 years with uh, a monetary policy that encourages greater you know debt um creation um like you said it's it's uh, pretty obvious that that this cannot be done indefinitely um and it's also pretty obvious that especially this cycle you know we, we've had a very long expansion cycle um since 2009 10 
but also the weakest expansion on record. Why? It seems obvious to me that uh, you know this extreme monetary policy is not having the desired effect, which would be a you know self-sustaining um, recovery. What? What are your? I mean, why do you think? Do you think it's just a psychological phenomenon that they accept? They they refuse to accept that reality, or or something else going on? Well, I think there. Uh, <laughs> here's the short answer. I don't know. Um, on the one hand, it could well be that the only factor at play is the maintenance of the false beliefs that I just spoke about. The second thing, however, and maybe both of them are going on at the same time, is the central bankers sort of did the right thing in 2008 seven through 2009, it seemed to me. Remember, the, the thing started off with sort of totally dysfunctional financial markets. And I think the central bank stepped into that gap and sort of tried to sort things out as a, a matter of encouraging financial stability in exactly the right way. Um, but once they were into it, there was a lot of pressure to continue doing it pressure arising from other sources. And, and I guess what I mean by that is that here we had the initial use of monetary policy to try to stabilize financial markets and to stabilize the economic system. And then subsequently, of course, we had this strong fiscal retrenchment, you know, starting around 2010 and, and onwards. In addition, you had a lot of efforts being made to uh, improve the regulatory framework, which I think likely had the implications of slowing down bank credit or credit growth and and um, aggregate demand. So you, you had the fiscal thing and the regulatory thing moving in the direction of tightening up and monetary policy, which had already been eased for this other purpose, financial stability, found itself as the only game in town. And they basically felt impelled, it seemed to me, to continue doing what they had previously been doing, but for a totally different purpose than what they'd originally done it for. Okay, So they originally it was all about financial stability. And then, I think starting with Bernanke's speech in 2010, I think to the New York Economics Club, where the, the focus was all on, it's on aggregate demand, raising asset prices, the trickle-down thing, uh, lifting all boats. But it was a different objective of policy. It became a different objective for policy at that point. And so... Are the central bankers doing it because they truly believe that it will work and the side effects are inconsequential? Or have they gotten sucked into a position where they really had no choice but to continue doing what they're doing? Um, the answer is I don't know. I suspect it's a combination of the two. Okay. And, and let's just uh, talk about some of the... You've written that you're concerned about these undesired side effects. What specifically are you are you uh, referring to? 
Well, you know, there, there is a, a, a long literature out there, right, about, um, you know, Vixel basically came out at the beginning, I mean, it's over 100 years ago, and said that um, if you lower interest rates below the natural rate of interest, uh, that you will get inflation. And that was an undesired side effect. So I guess Vixel's conclusion was don't do it. But subsequently, there were all sorts of people who came along and said, well, that's not the only thing you have to worry about. Uh, you know, we had um, uh, Hayek, for example, you know, back in the 1930s, talking about real misallocations of resources. Um, you had, um, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Richard Koo talking about balance sheet recessions and that, you know, too easy monetary policies would lead to debt buildups that would then subsequently have to be reversed and would be recessionary for a long period of time. Uh, you had Hyminsky and all of this stuff about uh, stability breeds instability. Um, you know, people just get, um, what's the word? When things are okay, people say it's going to continue to be okay even though there's problems building up underneath the surface. So, so there's a long sort of uh, academic history of, of concerns about these matters. Um, I guess most recently, and this is sort of some combination of the BIS when I was there as the, as the economic advisor, and the stuff that I've been saying more recently, is that um, the, the side, side effects are of a, a very varied nature. Uh, one of them, I think, the sort of growing evidence, and this is sort of Hayekian in 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 spirit, that you 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 get big misallocations in the boom period. Okay, that's generated by the easy money. You you get misallocations that I think in recent years have forced too many resources into um, retail. I mean, particularly in the United States. But retail, banking, commodities for a long period of time. Uh, so you get these misallocations. And then, of course, then along comes the bust. And in the bust, the recourse to easy money again. But this is just an invitation to the banks and to others to sort of evergreen the loans. Um, I mean, Ben Bernanke wrote something about this in the 1980s. You know, the, the, the basic message is one of, if I don't know my client is solvent, and I, the banker, don't know whether I'm solvent, uh, the idea that um, I'm going to blow the whistle on them, um, you know, there's a very strong incentive to just uh, evergreen the loan, not take the hit, because maybe, you know, may, like Mr. Macabre, maybe things will work out for my client, and I know I can't take the hit as a banker because I don't have enough capital. So the fallback position is just roll it over. And then you've got all sorts of competition uh, that ought to be dead, that's still alive, sort of like the zombies dragging the good companies down into the grave with them. So that's one element in terms of you know misallocations and lower potential growth. Another one that worries me, and it's, and it's, it's closely related to the financial instability side, is that if you've got a world in which um, market prices are basically determined by the central bank. 
you know, and the price discovery process has disappeared and the correlations have all gone, you know, between the asset classes, the rates of return have gone very high. Well, where's the value in, where's the value in value in, in, in value investing? And where's the value for that matter in diversification? And so you get less of these things. And I tend to think that those things are, are good for good credit allocation and for potential and for fostering faster potential growth going forward. So those are the sorts of things that one worries about in terms of, you know, really underlying negative effects on potential growth going forward. And then you've got all the other sort of financial sector side problems that uh, people have wrestled with, perhaps both in the U.S. and in Europe, which is, um, you know, narrowing the spreads, uh, both the credit spreads and the term spreads. And so the insurance companies and the pension funds are having a tougher and tougher time to stay afloat. Uh, the banks, uh, who didn't complain about it for a surprisingly long period of time, uh, but then started to realize that their margins were getting squeezed too. So that's, that's a problem on the financial side. You know, maybe these policies will give you more financial instability as opposed to less financial instability. And um, I think there's a very good case to be made that not only do you sort of, um, as it were, set the prices falsely, but many of the prices get set too high. So you've got so much liquidity being created by the central bank that it drives up the prices of virtually everything. So um, you sit there at the moment, it's gotten a little better recently, but you know, trillions of dollars worth of quote-unquote riskless bond yields in, in negative territory. And you've got these uh, high yield spreads that have been squeezed, squeezed, squeezed. You've got you know, the fix at very, very low levels, the same sort of rationale. And so all of these things, it seems to me, are, 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 you know, potentially reversible. And then the question becomes, well, what will be the fallout? And the answer is we don't know, but it's likely to be unpleasant. So there, there's, there's all of these sort of undesirable side effects that, that I think are materially important. Um, some things that are not sort of directly related to the, the economic well, it's hard to tell. I mean, everything's related to everything. But what I was going to say was that, you know, I think wealth distribution has been skewed by what's gone on here. And and I, I wouldn't put monetary policy and high prices of financial assets owned by richer people uh, number one in the driver's seat for the increase in both income and wealth inequality. But we've already got a big problem in virtually every country you can think of in terms of rising inequality. And I think monetary policy has made it worse. And so that's not a good thing. Uh, then we got all these other issues about uh, central bank independence and whatever. And um, I think that the way in which monetary policy has been conducted has left the central banks very exposed uh, it's left them exposed with respect to their own internal capital. Uh, you know what happens if the you know if the rates go up significantly in a lot of the assets that the Fed has bought in, um, and the same in other countries. I mean, the ECB and uh, Bank of England, etc. It's a Bank of Japan. Um, so um, 
I think there's a lot of unintended side effects. And one could say, well, look, at, if it's only a year or two, the benefits of these policies outweigh the costs. But what I'm concerned about now is that after nine years of this stuff, and it has been almost, it started in 2007, right? So uh, almost 10 years. Um, 10 years is a long time. And um, the way that I've expressed it sometimes is, you know, if you think that the efficiency of monetary policy is declining over time, you know, that the bang for the buck is getting less and less in terms of aggregate demand increases, and if you think that the costs associated with the policy, all of these side effects that I've just been talking about, are going up over time, and we've got one function sloping down with time and one function sloping up with time. And at a certain point, the two paths cross and you basically say, we're doing more harm than good and we should stop doing it. And I guess reasonable men can, and women can disagree about where that crossover point comes. But I guess after 10 years, you'd at least have to be sort of thinking about the possibility that we might have gone past the due date. Absolutely, and and you know we talk about the these unintended or undesired side effects. What about the you know uh, intended effects? And and do you think central banks should have to demonstrate some type of efficacy of these policies? Um, well, you know, it was the it was the great Keynes who, in the general theory, I think in chapter thirteen. Uh, said, if I get the quote, quote right, if we are tempted to assert that money is the liquid that activates the system, we would do well to remember that there are many slips twixt the cup and the lip. And he then goes on to point out how all of the elements in the transmission mechanism uh, that would lead eventually to an increase in demand might not work. And I think he was spot on. And you, you will recall, too, that, I mean, the treatise on money basically started off by saying, well, concluded, use these extraordinary monetary uh, instruments, and they will work. Uh, but that was 1931, and by 1936, Keynes himself had said, uh, this is not the right way to do it, and we have to turn to something else. And, of course, that something else was, was fiscal policy and infrastructure and blah, blah, blah. So um, there, there's, again, a kind of um, precedent here in the history of economic thought that, you know, maybe it might not work. Now, now why, why might it not work? Um, well, for, for a starter, I guess, because monetary policy in whatever form you, you, you think about it, conventional or unconventional, is trying to induce people to move their spending forward in time, right? Because the discount rate is now lower than it was previously. So what you would have spent later, you want to spend it sooner. And this is what my colleagues at the Fed always used to refer to, and very positively, as intertemporal allocation. And this was a good thing. But while they always talked about the more spending today as a good thing, they never spoke about the fact that if you, the intertemporal allocation by definition means what you spend today, you can't spend tomorrow. 
Okay? They never talked about that. But that's precisely what happens. Uh, or to put it another way, if you encourage people to build up debts that have to be repaid, okay, and the debts are the counterpart to the spending, well then, what is a stimulus today is a de-stimulus tomorrow. And so I think there's a lot of that going on. And, I mean, as you're, as you're well aware, I mean, at the global level now, I think the, uh, the Institute for International Finance um, quite recently came up with a study, and I, I, can't, I think what they said was that since 2010, or 2007, from 2007 to 2017, the overall level of global debt, that is to say governments, households, and corporates, is up by $70 trillion. And a, a very large chunk of that now is in the emerging market economies. But the, the central point is that the debt levels have gone up very, very substantially. And it's those debt levels, or as Chairman Greenspan would have referred to them, the headwinds, that eventually kick in and, as it were, stop your monetary policy from producing the sustainable increase in aggregate demand that you'd anticipated. So after 10 years of doing this, you know, one wouldn't be surprised to find um, not only has there been sort of a weak response to the policy, but that we've been left with a still greater headwind of debt that makes many of us feel a bit worried about where we go from here. So that that's a sort of a general point. I think a second thing, too, about this policy is that um, what they have done, the central banks, has been so unusual. Okay, They've been making this stuff as, up as they go along, uh, but it's so unusual that I think there must be a lot of people out there who basically say, this is so unusual and scary that it implies that there's something bad happening. And my reaction is I'm just going to hunker down. You know, when you're not sure about what, what the, what's going on in the world and there's profound uncertainty about what's happening, uh, to, 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 to which this policy sort of gives some, some support because it's so unconventional, well, if people are just hunkering down, then again you're going to get less of a you're going to get less of a response, and um, you can go through all the different elements. I mean, the consumption, the investment, whatever, and you can come up with a whole list of other things that lead to the policy being less effective. But um, I think that's probably a, a long enough list for the moment. Okay, <laughs> is, that is that now? now um, um, Thinking about you know the Fed uh, talking about unwinding their their balance sheet now. I mean, I, I, do you think these are you know the efficacy of the policy waning and uh, potentially creating uncertainty? I, you know, and that's an interesting point that I haven't. I, I don't think I've heard somebody make. Do you think that's kind of what uh, is behind their thinking in this regard, or do you think they just want to um, kind of create some firepower for the next, uh, some dry powder for the next downturn? Well, again, I mean, unless I was sort of sitting in there at the FOMC meetings and, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say what it is that motivates people. Mm -hmm. um, given Janet Yellen's background in particular as a labor economist, uh, and I'm going out on a limb here, 
I wouldn't be at all surprised that she's taking a, a relatively conventional view of the inflationary process and that what the Fed is now saying is that uh, you're so close to full employment, although I know there's 14 different measures of it, but that you're, you're close enough now and the momentum is strong enough now, momentum of growth, that even though we don't see the inflationary pressures, it's, it's coming down the line. And that if they don't want to be behind the curve, that they have to move sooner as opposed to later. Uh, I think there's a strong element of there's no. I think there's likely to be a strong element of that in the way that people think about it. I've read a couple of pieces, but it's all sort of secondhand stuff. That in fact there is a growing sense of concern about some of the side effects that I mentioned earlier, although their concerns would be nowhere near as great as mine have been for low these many years right now. But it may be that sort of looking at some of these financial variables are starting and the debt levels and that they're starting to say to themselves, um, you know, I think we've got to we've got to have some concerns to sort of head this off. Um well, we, we've seen, you know, the, the conventional, uh, I think, wisdom when these policies began was that, you know, if you extend them too long, you will see inflation. And, and we've seen, obviously, massive inflation in uh, the prices of, you know, financial assets. But we haven't seen traditional inflation. And, and so this is something, I think, that uh, people are trying to understand is, is uh, you know, why haven't we seen inflation and, and why might we see it? Uh, in the future, I know this is something yeah. that you've you've been concerned about. Well, it, it's sort of interesting. Um, it's it's a bit of a reprise, you know, of the two thousand and eight thing. Like what we said at the time at the BIS was, um, and I actually wrote a couple of papers about this, technical papers. Uh, why is global inflation so low leading up to two thousand and eight? I mean, inflation was very low. Um, this crisis was not preceded by sort of a major inflationary upswing. Um, and I guess the answer that I came up with was that the reintroduction of China and Slovakia and all these sort of command and control economies back into the global trading system uh, basically constituted a, a very significant positive supply side shock. And add into that the baby boomers going through in the uh, advanced market economies. And what you had was a significant positive supply side shock. At the same time, um, demand was relatively weak. And here, there, I think there's more work that needs to be done on this. One part of the hypothesis, I've heard Charles Goodhart talk about this, is that because labor income was so weak and wages, you know, because it was an oversupply of labor, if you want to put it that way, you know, in that earlier period, uh, that wage growth was uh, severely constrained. That accounted for the declining uh, labor share in terms of total factor income. And so, therefore, the workers didn't have the wherewithal, as it were, for very strong consumption in many out-of-income 
by the same set of arguments, and this is where I think we need we need more work. Even though the corporate profits were very high leading into the crisis, um, I think the conventional wisdom would be that if the profits were high, that the accelerator would have led to still more investment spending, but it didn't. And the counter-argument is, well, when the profits are that high, who needs to invest still more to keep ahead of your competitors? Because we're making lots of money. And then you add in on the investment side, the sort of the investment collapse after uh, German, well, after the Japanese bubble, Southeast Asia, German reunification, the TTM thing. So there are a whole series of negative shocks to investment. Bottom line, supplies moved out, demands moved down, um, prices are very, very weak, and monetary policy moves to back in the demand that's missing. And so we wound up in that period, the great moderation, with very fast growth, but very low inflation and very low real interest rates. And then the whole thing collapsed. Now, what I'm worried about at the moment is that we may have the same kind of thing going on, um, that um, the increases in capacity particularly in, in China, but more broadly through value-added chains and all that sort of stuff, may in fact be giving a continuing disinflationary impetus to the global economy. And that, that inflation, in fact, constitutes, at least for us in the advanced market economies, another positive supply-side shock. And if that's the case then leaning against it with still more credit growth is not the right response. Um, the BIS annual report this year, and I continue to, even though I don't write it, I continue to read it with great interest. Um, they've got a big section in there, and Claudio Borio talked about it a lot at the um, annual general meeting this year, about the way in which the, um, if you take a traditional Phillips curve, whether a wage Phillips or a price Phillips curve, the coefficient on the gap, the domestic gap, has been going down and down in virtually every country. And the coefficient on the global gap has been going up in virtually every country. And so what it really implies is that it's these global forces now that are having more of an impact than they did before. So um, if that's the case, it, it really calls, it seems to me, for a a much broader discussion about how we cooperate, coordinate, I'm not sure what, at the global level uh, to try to, to, to deal with problems that really have their origins at the global level. But, of course, that's not the way people are thinking about it. Everything's still being done totally at the national level. So that's a... That's a source of, 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 of real concern to me, that um, we are collectively making the same mistake. We've collectively been making the same mistake in recent years that we, made, that we made prior to the crisis, which is that we're responding to a positive supply-side shock with credit creation, and that's just simply going to make the problems worse, not better. And so we've built up a ton of debt over this this time period, you know. And and monetary policy has become becoming less effective. How does this, you know, in, in your view, what do you think is the most likely um, 
end game for this for this process right it can only go so far before you've taken on you know the as much debt as you can possibly sustain how do you how do you see this evolving um let, let me there there are alternative scenarios clearly and how monetary policy reacts to those different scenarios Okay, as another element of uncertainty, do, do, do you follow me? But just sort of the, the, the inherent dynamics of the situation in which we find ourselves are uncertain, and how monetary policy will react to those unfolding circumstances is also uncertain. But um, where do we go from here? Uh, before we talk about monetary policy, um, Two broad stories, it seems to me. Uh, the, 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 the happy, not sure whether to start with the happy story or the sad story. Let's start with the happy story. The happy story is that monetary policy has now got us to a point of self, um, what's the word? It's got a momentum to the recovery that will be self-sustaining and that the growth rates will will be faster than the percentage point increase in the interest rate. So that you'd have a world in which uh, the, the economies are, the global economies are recovering and debt ratios are basically going down because GDP is growing faster than the, the debt services. Um, and that could happen. I mean, it's interesting, for example, at the moment. You know, this is, the, I was just looking at the IMF. Uh, the IMF just uh, came out with a revised forecast. And basically, global growth, I think, is going to be, you know, they, they for 2017 will be uh, about three and a half percentage points. Uh, with the U.S. and the U.K. slowing down a bit from earlier forecasts. But China, Japan, and China... Uh, stronger than earlier forecasts. But the central thing about it is that this is the first time, I think, in nine years where the forecast as of the middle of the year, okay, so 2017 for 2017, is not significantly lower than it was when the forecast was made a year ago. So we've had eight or nine years now of you know, in year X, I forecast X plus one is going to be real good. And then in, in year X plus one, I have to say it isn't. Okay? So we've had constant downward revisions. And this is the first year, I think, where we haven't had that. So maybe this is just the beginnings of, of, of some sustained good news. It is possible. And, of course, if, if you do get a sustained, relatively rapid growth... And the debt levels start, the debt ratios start going down. Um, then I think all of those asset prices that you look at now as being pretty rich, the reaction might well be, yeah, they're a bit rich, but the underlying fundamentals are better, and so it's okay. Okay, so that's that's one story that you could tell. But there's two things that worry me about that story, and that's why I think. We're just going to have to wait and see. Um, first thing is, of course, inflation. And if the story is one of 
we've got sustained growth coming down the line here, but Germany, Japan, the United States, and a number of other countries are already pretty close to full employment, then even if we haven't seen the inflationary danger, uh, there's always the possibility that, uh, that it will erupt. Um, I think the policymakers, for all sorts of reasons, have got a bias towards keeping things easier than, you know, the, 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 the type of error that they will fall prey to will be one of too easy, too long, as opposed to the other way around. Not least because if they raise rates or whatever, and, uh, you know, that the economy falls back in consequence, central bankers are going to get 100% of the blame, and they know it. Okay, so they're, they're going to be they're going to be pretty worried about that because they're right. you know they're they're human like everybody else. So, uh, in terms of the inflationary pressures, how do you you know I I keep hearing from some smart people who say you know debt levels are too high and demographics going the wrong direction to ever see uh, another sustained rise in inflation. How how do you think about that? Well, I actually think that demographics are moving in the direction of more inflation because it's just a reversal of the process that I talked about before. That, um, you know, we're, we're now, I mean, China's got declining working age population. Japan's got declining total population. Uh, Korea's same situation. The U.S. is, it's again sort of... All of the demographics, the baby boom stuff and the international stuff, I, I think they're all working in the direction of negative supply-side shock. And what that would contribute to would be more inflation going forward, not, not less. Um, the caveat to that, and I say I, the whole thing is totally uncertain here, but the caveat is that maybe we'll get productivity gains um, of a... Of a of a sort that will offset that. And, you know, there are guys, for example, like uh, Brinfelson and uh, McPhee. He wrote that book called um, the, Second Mach- the Second Machine Age. You know that book? I have not seen that one, no. Okay, there's two guys out of MIT, actually. I mean, it's a very thoughtful book. But it, it totally flies in the face of Bob Gordon's suggestion that productivity, you know, the big... Big increases in productivity are behind us. We'll never see them again. These guys basically say we're just in the cusp of huge productivity increases. Now, I won't divert, get into this now, but that's the first half of their book. Second half of the book is all about winner-take-all and income distribution and jobs and middle-class jobs. and okay. But uh-huh. the central point of productivity increases is it could offset the demographics and frankly, I don't think anybody in the whole world knows uh, what the relative force of those two things will be. Um, but as I look forward, it seems to me that um, we'll see um, what's the word? We'll, we'll see um, um, so that these two forces, demographics, more inflation, productivity, less inflation, fighting it out. And we won't know until we see it happen. Uh, what I would say, however, is that if the central banks, during the whole period of time that we don't see the inflation rise, the central banks keep on gunning the monetary um, uh, engines, uh, then in the end, I mean, they will create the inflation. Um, but in the process, 
I suspect uh, they'll also have created an awful lot, of, an awful lot more of the imbalances that I was just talking about. So I think in the end, I mean, this good news story, uh, even if the inflation rate stays low, um, you could get yourself into other problems. Um, and I guess that sort of brings me back to when I was saying, here's the good news story, but what could go wrong? One of them is inflation. Uh, but that's not the only thing that could go wrong. Even suppose we don't get a big increase in inflation. Uh, as I suggested, there, there are so many imbalances out there and so many sources of concern that as the central bankers, as and when the central bankers eventually have to tighten, um, the response of the financial markets could actually be pretty disorderly. And that that's the thing, it seems to me, that I think the Fed's got this in the back of their mind, too. I mean, that you know, you read their stuff, and they're so cautious, and so they don't mention the financial thing, but it, it's it's got to be there in the back of their minds, that things are so far away from normal, and particularly all these asset prices and the degree of leverage, not the degree, so much degree of leverage, but, you know, that. The sort of the, the, the growth of these cup-like loans now, and in the United States in particular, people worried about some pro, subprime car car loans and um, consumer credit and student loans. And, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of worry that there's vulnerabilities there. And I think when the rates do start to move up in any kind of serious way, the markets, there could be a lot of people heading for the exits at the same time. And all of those people that are smarter than the other people, you know, and that's everybody, um, you know, they're all in They're all in the game because they all think they can get out first. And uh, so I, I think that, 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 that point where you get a good news story and the Fed and everybody else then says we have to start to tighten up that's going to be a very dangerous time. And it could work out okay, but I think there's a very reasonable chance that uh, the markets will re overreact. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, then we'll be back into recession again, and we'll be in a recession with all of that debt build up. And then where you go from here is anybody's guess. And that's the good news story. The, uh, so you can tell a story, but there's a lot of risks associated with it. Right. The bad news story, of course, is that uh, yeah, they've uh, the forecast for 2017 has been revised up uh, for the first time in nine years. But wait another quarter, and it gets revised back down again, and it turns out that it's nothing more than uh, you know a false signal. That in fact the economy is as global economy is as sluggish as ever. And if that's the case, then all of that, um, what's the word, the wishful thinking about equity prices and high-yield spreads all being justified by the circumstances, people will have to go back and think again. Uh, the extend and pretend will have to come to a halt. And then you're back to the first scenario if some of the risks materialize. So um, I, I think this thing... It is possible that this thing could, could end happily and in a measured, orderly way. But there's a lot of, I think it's a pretty narrow doorway. That's, that's personally my own feeling about it.
It's possible, but it's a pretty narrow doorway. Gotcha. You know, it's it, yeah. They're trying to, to thread a needle, where, where you know, by, by scaling back these emergency experimental policies after a decade, without undoing the the good effects that they they created. And really, the the the, the main effect that I see from quantitative easing is is uh, they were able to create. Uh, a wealth effect by boosting financial um, uh, prices of financial assets, although it probably didn't have the economic impact that they hoped. Um, it, it only stands to reason that if you unwind those policies, you risk unwinding those effects as well. Um, yeah, and, and I, they can't have it both ways. Eh? I mean, on the one hand, you know, the central banks are constantly claiming that what they've done has been a very positive stimulus to aggregate demand. Uh, the ECB has, has been a bit more clever. I mean, they, they mostly have been talking about improving the transmission mechanism, whereas I think the Fed and the Bank of Japan, it, it, it's, been, it's been more blatantly, we've tried to increase aggregate demand and it's worked. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if, um, if what you see is because of QE, and then they decide to unwind QE, well, then I, I would expect to find a reversal of what happened earlier on, which is not good for aggregate demand. You know, there's a, a, a book I read in the last couple of years, and I, I really thought it, uh, it was fascinating. And I've, I've never been a big history nut, but I've really gotten into it uh, recently. It was uh, Lords of Finance. And uh, there's a great quote in there, I, I think, from Montague Norman, says, as I look back, it now seems that with all the thought and work and good intentions which we provided, we achieved absolutely nothing. Nothing that I did and very little that old Ben did internationally produced any good effect or indeed any effect at all, except that we collected money from a lot of poor devils and gave it over to the four winds. And when I read that, I thought about a lot of the quantitative easing that's been done and uh, and mainly in terms of you know corporate stock buybacks. Uh, there's a lot of money that was borrowed over the last 10 years and used to just buy back equities and, and, and retire them. And yeah. to me, you know, giving money over to the four winds sounds a lot like that. Do you, do you, um, do you feel like history is rhyming today with that earlier period? Well, I, do. I, mean, I think, I think the, um, the, the funny thing about it, my, my, my PhD supervisor actually was Victor Morgan, who was actually an economic historian. And uh, so I've had an interest in economic history for a, for a long period of time. And uh, I've got a, a folder here. I know I shouldn't keep paper, but I've got a folder here that must be nine inches thick about uh, previous crises and the characteristics and whatever. Most of the stuff, unfortunately, written after the crisis hit, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, as they say, history... Uh, Mark Twain, isn't it? History doesn't rhyme, but it repeats itself. It doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Exactly. And yeah. um, I first caught on to this, I think. I was very interested in uh, the Japanese uh, experience. And um, once you started thinking seriously about that, it started to look sort of very much like the, the 1930s. And then I went back and read a piece by Joseph Schumpeter that was written in 1932. Four, I think, in which he looks back to the big recessions of 1874 and 1825. And you, what comes out of it is um, seen it, done it. 
you know, it's big uh, run-up speculation of various sorts. And in the end, uh, the whole thing collapses. And John Kenneth Galbraith, I can't find the quote right at the moment, but uh, in one of his books, he, he talks about um, uh, new financial instruments, okay? It's the same sort of thing with CDOs and CDO squares and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in the 1930s, it was consumer credit, and in uh, you know the 1870s, it was uh, credit to the railways and blah, blah, blah. Um, so every one of these things, every one of these big financial crises has had uh, an element of new instruments, okay? And the policymakers always like to emphasize the role played by these new instruments, uh, because it gets them off the hook, because they can then say, well, look, at this was a totally new development. You know, Nobody had ever seen CDOs before. How could you expect me to understand the full implications, et cetera, et cetera? Right. But what John Kenneth Gelbray says, that this is the case every time there's a big crisis. And what nobody ever asks about is the underlying speculation and excessive credit expansion that led to the boom in the first place. And this is what I've called earlier on in various speeches and stuff, the difference between the school of what is the same, i.e. credit and speculation, and the school of what is different, okay? Well, it's all these new instruments. And I think what you see throughout history is just a, a repeat of, of these processes. And, of course, um, I mean, the classic uh, works there, I guess, are um, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff, you know, this time is different. Uh, Schulerich and Taylor have written a lot of stuff about this, big historical databases. And, yeah, there's, there's a lot of it. And uh, an underlying theme as well is that property is right at the heart of it. You know, if you're looking, if you're looking for a magic bullet, that sort of, if the, to the extent that there's a magic bullet in these things, you know, what's, no, I shouldn't say magic bullet, the, the thing that, uh, that, that really does you, uh, does you harm uh, is speculation on property. And property is collateral. And, and as, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Adair Turner points out, um, a lot of it, a lot of the property stuff, doesn't even have to do with new property. It just has to do with credit extended for the purchases of old properties, driving up their prices. And you say to yourself, that's a pretty weird way to run a system. But I get you on to much more revolutionary stuff, you know, about whether, you know, whether we need narrow money, back to the Chicago school of the 1930s. Um, uh, I should put in a plug for a book Two young guys from Zurich. Yeah, please do. Um, they've written a book. It, it, it's, a, it's a pseudonym. It's called, uh, the author is Jonathan McMillan. And uh, the book is called The End of Banking. Uh, and what they mean by that is the end of a system in which you banks can create credit by simply writing up both sides of the balance sheet, which is what they, what they do, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so it's sort of Chicago school, but the fundamental problem with the Chicago school was that they really didn't pay any attention to the fact that people could invent money in different ways. Shadow banking, okay, which is uh, basically what happened the last time around. 
And uh, this book is, it, it makes a very sort of um, persuasive case for how you can use fintech, uh, how, you, how you can put fintech together with narrow banking to get a much more sensible financial system than the one we have at the moment. It's, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, th- thanks for the recommendation. I'll have to check that out. Um, I got w- one last question for you. I'm very curious to know about. Uh, obviously, you know, we've discussed uh, the unintended or you know, consequences of experimental discretionary monetary policy. What do you, and we and you brought up earlier in the conversation about uh, central bank independence. What are your thoughts on on more of a rules-based policy, something along the lines of a Taylor rule uh, for, for central banks? Well, um, I, I guess I would say, and I, again, I'm sort of torn about this, I'm, I'm against it. Uh, in any kind of narrow rule sense, like a Taylor rule. Um, basically, because I believe that the world is such a complex and adaptive place, and this goes back to the beginnings of our conversation, you know, with all of the things that the Bank of Canada tried to do, you know, this is our rule, this, this is what we're going to do, and, and we came a cropper in all of them. So I think there's a, a considerable degree of discretion that is required of any central bank uh, in the conduct of policy. Having said that, um, it does seem to me that there ought to be much more emphasis uh, in terms of there ought to be much more emphasis on the potential unexpected consequences of what central banks do. Okay, so this is sort of uh, putting constraints on them, but in a rather different way. Like, I, I think the difference, for example, if you think about how radical the policies conducted have been and the potential radical implications, okay, of the sort that we were talking about, you would have thought that there would would have had to be some very significant almost proofs that those side effects were not there and the example that i use is think about the you know think about the fda if you want to bring in a new drug okay not only do you have to prove that it works but you have to prove through diligent attention and experimentation all the rest of it that there aren't any significant side effects. And yet these policies, these monetary policies, we, we've produced, proceeded on the basis of full speed ahead and damn the torpedoes without even a serious, without any se- serious consideration even of the possible side effects. And I think that's, I think that's wrong. But maybe that's just sort of my basic conservative nature, you know. But it, it is... It is, in a sense, it's back to Hayek, I guess, which is, you know, the concept that even institutions, institutions, the basic way that people do things, they've been brought in for a purpose, they've evolved over time um, to suit a purpose, and that to just simply 
sweep them away without due consideration is not very sensible. But maybe that's just uh, me, sort of, and my rather, you know, the older I get, the more fundamentally conservative I get. Where just says, but there must be some good reason for this, you know, in an evolutionary context. So I wouldn't go for a de- detailed rule. I think central bankers need a lot of discretion, particularly as the world changes. But I think um, entertaining more seriously the idea of there could be unintended and undesired consequences and taking steps to ensure it doesn't happen, um, that ought to be much more part of the, the what's the word, of the, the, the analytical methodology uh, that would support uh, doing what they do. Perhaps a you know an uh, an additional mandate of you know first do no harm. <laughs> well, and, and I've, that... I've used that before too. You know, remember um, yeah. Mervyn King at one point used that quote of Keynes that uh, you know he, he hoped that eventually that central bankers would be thought about as just ordinary humdrum people like dentists. Okay, and uh, I can remember when he said that I. I, I, I'm with you. I was going one step further. No, not dentists, doctors. Above right. all, do no harm. Right. Well, perfect. I, you know, thank you so much for your time today, Bill. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. How can people who want to keep up with your ideas and your writing, where can they, where can they find you? Oh, it's, it's on the, uh, I've got a website. It's in the process of being redone, but it's, it's still up. Um, and it's uh, www. Um, William White, one word. WilliamWhite.ca. Uh, okay, yeah, that's... .ca. That's CA for Canada. So I really want to encourage everyone to go check out Bill's website. He's got a ton of great material there, including the speech that I referenced in the intro. As always, I'll put up uh, links to that speech and to Bill's website uh, in a post at thefelderreport.com. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Thank you very much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. And until next time, buy low, sell high.